Uh, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. With me, Adam Murphy, I'm with Chris Smith. This week, we're looking at radioactivity from its uses in medicine to its uses in war, plus a sneak preview of a new film due out soon all about radioactivity pioneer Marie Curie. Plus, a new 90-minute test for coronavirus infection, how fast is the new coronavirus mutating, and evidence that humans are just like dogs. We eat much faster if there's someone else around. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Test, test, test. The World Health Organization have said, counselling the world on how it ought to be proceeding in trying to gain control of the coronavirus pandemic. But scaling up to offer tests to large numbers of people, as well as making tests fast and agile, seems to be proving very difficult. Now, researchers at the University of Cambridge and the company Diagnostics for the Real World have repurposed a rapid HIV test so it can detect coronavirus infections in just 90 minutes. The system generates multiple copies of the genetic information for the virus, if it's present, and then produces a visible pattern of three lines on a readout, as well as an electronic log of the results. I spoke to Dami Collier, who's been working on the new system. This is a rapid diagnostic test for COVID-19. So it's rapid in the sense that from taking the sample from the patient, which is usually a swab of the back of the throat and their nose, to the point of being able to give them the test result has been cut down dramatically from what is ordinarily between one or three days to two hours. So it is a game changer for people who are meeting patients on the front line, in A&E departments, in general medical departments, you have to make rapid decisions about where these patients need to go. So that one, that they're cared for appropriately, and two, if they are infectious, other patients are protected from getting infected. How does this test work, and how have you been able to do in a couple of hours what was previously taking, or is still taking, laboratories days to do? This machine is based on a technique called PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, which can take um, a copy of genetic information and copy it many times over so that it can be detected. In clinical practice, we'll take a a swab uh, of the throat or the nose to try and pick up some virus and then put it in the machine, and the machine can then copy this many times over, allowing us to detect it on a test strip. And it can do this in the space of two hours. Was it invented for this purpose or is this a case of a repurposing? You, you took something that already existed and was being used for something else and realised, oh, you could do this with it. Oh, yeah. So it's uh, really the very clever people at uh, diagnostics in the real world who then repurposed the machine that was initially um, developed to test HIV and turned it for use to try and address this problem we're having with the coronavirus pandemic. So talk me through then, if I, if I came in and sat in the waiting room at a hospital and one of these machines was running there, what would happen to me in order to give me my diagnosis in two hours? What would you do to me? Okay, so we take a, a swab from the back of your throat with a little cotton wool and we'll take this swab, which hopefully has picked up some virus if you're carrying some, into a tube of fluid that makes it safe to handle. We then pop this into this machine. It's connected uh, by Bluetooth to a tablet, which tells us when it's ready to read the test, and it reads out the test for us. But also, we can have a look at the test strips ourselves and see if there are lines in there to suggest that the test is positive. While the machine is testing me, though, can you use it to test you? Or while it's testing me, is it completely stuck testing me for the two hours it takes to give me my result? Yes. So this machine tests only one sample at a time. So there is potentially a bottleneck there then, isn't there, in the same way that we're currently at a bottleneck with testing people at scale across the UK and other countries. We've still got potentially a bottleneck here. Your result's coming out very quickly, but you're limited by how many machines you've got. Yes, exactly. That, that is true. There will be a bottleneck there. However, these machines, I think, can serve certain populations very well. So if you can imagine in an A&E 
situation where you have to make a decision, does this patient need to go into a side room for the care they need right now, then it can help to help you facilitate those sorts of questions very quickly. And in terms of actually how it works, is it better or at least as good as the tests that we currently have that are being done in, say, Public Health England laboratories across the country? The right thing to do with new technology or tests is to evaluate it thoroughly. And this has undergone clinical evaluation at Addenbrooke's Hospital, where we were able to test over 100 patients, half of whom had confirmed positive COVID-19 and the other proportion who didn't. And it's coming up with a sensitivity of almost 99%, which means that if there were 100 people in a room who had COVID-19, it was able to detect 99 of them, which is very good for a diagnostic test. And also, it wasn't picking up any tests and calling them positives when, in fact, they were negatives. So, in fact, it has 100% specificity. So I think there'll be lots of interest from, from, from lots of uh, places up and down the country. Danny Collier there from the University of Cambridge. And that tests like this can't come any sooner. But this period of coronavirus lockdown is also dramatically changing our outside environment. Closed shops, quieter roads, emptier parks. One town in Wales has even been invaded by goats lured in from the surrounding hills by the absence of people. And with fewer cars and buses on the road and fewer planes overhead, what impact is lockdown having on our air quality? Katie Haler spoke to BBC Science correspondent Victoria Gill, who explained the pollution levels in the UK have dropped sharply, particularly in cities. We've actually very recently had a measure from some ground-based measurements showing reductions in some pollutants that we know are bad for our health and we know are associated with the kinds of activities that have dropped so sharply since we all were sort of plunged into this uh, coronavirus-induced lockdown. So things like transport and industry, so nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter, so that's small particles. And, And we know that they can do some damage in our lungs, particularly particles under a certain size can sort of get right down into our lungs Scientists and public health specialists are are really interested to see what will happen as this lockdown continues, because there's not much good news coming out of the coronavirus crisis, but it does seem to be inadvertently improving our air quality. How are scientists actually measuring this drop? We've seen a number of different measurements, actually, and this is an international effect. We've, we've had some, some measurements that have come from China and from India. We're also, I should say, seeing a drop off in carbon dioxide, some of those greenhouse gases as well. In Europe, we saw a really interesting measurement come from some satellite-based spectrometry, measuring the colours that are being reflected from the sunlight that's hitting the Earth. And those different colours represent the reflections from different types of gas. So you can see different types of pollutants and take that colour intensity as a measure of the amounts of those gases. We then saw from the National Centre for Atmospheric Science these city-based ground measurements that really give us a measurement of the air that we're breathing and we're seeing the same thing across the UK. Is it possible to determine what impact this could have? A lot of what will happen in the longer term will depend on how quickly some of those pollution driving sectors bounce back. So for one thing, we've heard from the UK government that they're going to be phasing out the sale of vehicles that have internal combustion engines and moving to electric vehicles. What we can maybe see over the next however many weeks and months that we are kind of stuck in this lockdown is a realistic measure of the kind of target that we'd be looking for when we take a lot of those diesel vehicles off the road and replace them with electric vehicles. So there could be some long-term, better, more informed targets for air pollution. The worry is that once this immediate crisis is over, there'll be a drive to just restart the economy without any of that in mind. So I think public health specialists and atmospheric chemists will be trying to kind of build in some good practical advice into how we may be keeping some of these benefits to the air that we're breathing. Do you think there are any lessons we can learn in terms of pollution if we, if we look you know, to, to people who are a bit ahead of us? 
there's something positive that we can take from this unintended consequence of what's happening in so many places. You know, we've seen a quarter of the world under lockdown and lockdown means less transport, less industry. It means less pollution. Now, if we can monitor the effect that that is having on people's cardiovascular health on people's ability to kind of breathe clean air, but also take some lessons from it in terms of what our streets and urban centres could look like if we can limit that pollution and limit that transport. I think we're all learning lessons about how the world could change. You know, there's been a huge amount of frustration, especially from kind of the younger generations and activists in the environmental movement about how slow we've been to respond to the emergency that is climate change. And what this does show us is that when there's an emergency that is immediate to our our public health, we can act and we can put in some really severe measures. Now, I'm not suggesting that governments are, are going to do anything along this scale to tackle climate change, but it shows what's possible maybe we can take some lessons from this in order to apply to that bigger global emergency that is you know the state of our planet and our warming world so a breath of fresh air there thanks very much to bbc science correspondent victoria gill As the coronavirus spreads around the world, it's steadily mutating its genetic code, introducing fingerprint changes that scientists can track. These can highlight how the virus has moved between countries and also how fast the disease is evolving. Phil Sansom caught up with Richard Nier from the University of Basel in Switzerland. He's one of the people behind Next Strain. This is an open source project that's been responsible for creating and analysing coronavirus family trees. It really has been um, a bit of a whirlwind development. So recall that this outbreak was first announced in the very end of December last year. By January 9, we already had the first complete genome sequence of this virus available. And then over the weeks that came, we got more and more of these genome sequences that came in. By comparing these genome sequences to each other, we immediately got a very good sense of that this is a single outbreak. These genomes were essentially identical. There was maybe like one or two differences here and there. And for an RNA virus with a fairly high mutation rate, that implies that these genomes had a very recent common ancestor, only a few weeks in the past. And when you say the genomes were coming in, are people sending them to you or what are they doing? No, and that's an important point. GISAID, which is a database that's used for influenza data sharing. GISAID. GISAID, the Global Initiative for Sharing All Influenza Data. They have jumped in and provided their infrastructure and terms and conditions, they sort of sharing mechanisms for the coronavirus sequencing community. So that has enabled um, labs all over the world to share their data for analysis. How many genomes and sets of data are they getting? We now have more than 2,000 full genomes available. And we can't look at all of them at the same time anymore. There's simply so many. It's been the first time that this real-time sequencing, sharing, and analysis is playing out. Now, you said those first few were basically identical. What's happened as the virus has gone all around the world? As RNA viruses do, they mutate, not every other day, but about twice a month. That is sort of our current estimate. And these aren't mistakes that are going to kill the virus. Well, some of them will kill the virus, but those are just dead ends, right? So the only ones that we see are those that don't kill the virus. They don't necessarily make the virus more aggressive or anything like that. Most of these mutations likely are just don't really have too much of a significance. But what they do allow us to do is group viruses together. You know, a particular virus that got sampled in the US is similar to a virus that got sampled in in Europe somewhere. That sort of gives us an idea how the virus is dispersing and how different outbreaks in different places might be connected. So how has this been useful as the virus has gone to continent after continent? Early on, when there's an outbreak in some country, politicians are very happy to say, well, we closed the borders and the problem is solved, right? (laughs) That has never worked. Surprise. And the sequences, they can tell you that this assertion is wrong, right? If you see many sequences that are very similar in your country, 
they probably were transmitted locally. So this is not a problem that you solve by closing borders, but this is a problem that you have to solve by clamping down on transmission in your community. Have you found weird cases where viruses have spread in ways that you haven't expected? And you can tell that from seeing the full genomes of the virus. So we've certainly seen, especially in the last week or two, within Europe, this viral population is very well mixed. There's not a single place this virus is coming from anymore. And this has, to some extent, been surprising how rapid and thorough the spread has been. Anyone can go online and see this. You'll see both a family tree of the virus and a map that shows you where on the planet these samples come from. And one has to be very mindful of the gaps that are in those data because mutations happen randomly. Sometimes there's no mutation for like four weeks. Sometimes there's three mutations in a week. And this means that seeing two things close together in the tree doesn't necessarily mean they were in the same place in time. Now, obviously, we're in this pandemic for sort of the long haul. What's the point of all this virus family tree mapping? Well, the most obvious data that we have about this outbreak is the number of cases in different places. But what these sequences give us, they add structure to these numbers. It's not just sort of 10,000 cases in New York or something like that. Suddenly, you can break this down into multiple variants. So you know you have not one outbreak, but you might have three outbreaks that sort of originate in different places. And how is that practically useful? It helps you focus infection control measures that you put in place. As you just said, we're in this pandemic for a couple of moments for sure, right? So we'll have to understand where this virus is transmitted, having the ability to use genome sequences to identify these transmission chains and transmission clusters gives you means to target infection control measures. It's amazing these days, isn't it, how we can track these diseases in real time. That was Richard Neher. He is from Next Strain, and he was speaking to Phil Sansom. And you can actually see the family trees and the latest situation reports that they're compiling on their website. That's at nextstrain.org. Now, thanks to coronavirus, in recent weeks we've all become remote home workers. And that means we're relying on video conferencing software like Skype and Zoom. And this has led to concerns about the security of the information being exchanged. So with me is tech commentator and angel investor Peter Cowley. So Peter, for the uninitiated, what is Zoom and how does it work? So Zoom is one of these many platforms for video conferencing. So as consumers, we tend to use FaceTime or Skype or WhatsApp or, or House Party, the new one that people are talking about. And for businesses, tend to use Microsoft Teams and GoToMeetings and, and uh, Cisco WebEx, but also Zoom. Zoom we also use actually privately. I'm going on to a drinks party after this on Zoom with people from various places around Europe. So Zoom, so basically it's, it's people getting together in a single place using audio and video. And with all these people together in one place, is it secure? As has been reported in the press quite a bit recently, Zoom, which has grown quite rapidly and has become the very much the dominant player in recent years, has not concentrated quite as much perhaps on privacy as they should. And this is what they've self-declared. This isn't something that I've, I've made out. There's been things like something called Zoom bombing, which is where somebody suddenly appears on it and says something rude or derogatory or has an image there which they definitely shouldn't be showing. Information has been passed to Facebook. People can join a meeting just knowing the ID and it famously Famously, the cabinet's Zoom meeting was published on Twitter with the ID on it as well. So that effectively, if somebody typed that in, they could have possibly joined that. Email addresses have been lost, etc. The big issue with Zoom is it's what in the industry is called a very large attack surface. This is there are probably at any one time hundreds of thousands or millions of Zoom calls going on. So that means it's quite easy for people getting that. I mean, people who are doing naughty things, not not you or I, of course, (laughs) getting into some of these calls. And you mentioned it was passing data to Facebook. What kind of data is it passing on? I don't know, and they seem to have cleared that. So there are a number of things that have happened. They've, they've now stopped any new features. And I, I've actually got a Zoom Pro account myself, and the number of features there, uh, settings is phenomenal. So there's more features than probably any of us will use. So what they're doing is basically closing these loopholes or closing the loopholes that have been found so far. Like any internet giant or any software really the things that could be leaked are data of course i couldn't tell you what zoom has leaked if anything leaked and also selling i mean we've been through this before with cambridge analytica haven't we here in cambridge a couple of years ago with all this happening what can people do to keep themselves safe on zoom 
two or three things which are being introduced, and I see that even on this meeting, it's coming up in about an hour's time, passwords. So having a password there, most meetings you get in, you get a link. If that link leaks, anybody can get into it. But if you've got a lot of participants, and I was on recently one with 100, there's no way you can see everybody. Something called waiting rooms or lobbies. So you can't get on immediately. You've got to get into this waiting room and then you're let on by the host. Again, this means they can't come in, they can't zoom bomb. Uh, You should mute your own video and your audio, of course, when you're not needed. If a host, you mustn't allow guest screen sharing. That way, the zoom bombing can't occur. So there's quite a lot of just good practice that people haven't been doing. And then what about our mobile networks and our smartphones and all this? How secure are they in the current situation? Well, a couple of things there. One is that some countries are actually using the mobile phone networks to do a couple of things. One is to contact trace so they can see if somebody's had COVID, who they've been near. And secondly, the social distancing because the data is accurate enough they can actually see. So this is very big brotherish, and I hope it doesn't get to many other countries like the UK. The other thing, as you might have seen, is that people are somehow blaming 5G for COVID transmission and they've been setting fire to masts, 5G mobile masts, and there's been seven or eight of them here in the UK being set fire to. I really can't see the connection there between how a 5G signal, which is yet another mobile signal, but no different really from the ones we've been used to for the last 20 or 30 years, and, and, and COVID, but they seem to think they are. And so you won't be stopping using 5G when it comes to that. <laughs> I won't be stopping using 5G. And I, I won't be stopping using Zoom, but I am very pleased to see that these other facilities like the passwords and the lobbies are things I didn't know about a week ago, which I do now. <laughs> and you'll be keeping safe on your drinks meeting in Zoom. <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Peter Cowley, thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. You'll have to Zoom off to your meeting now, Peter, and don't be late for the drinks. Now, here's some food for thought. Scientists have found that when you're snacking, you reach for food more often when you're with somebody else than you would if you were there just on your own, eating alone. This is a study from the University of Tokyo, and people were given plates of crisps, and this is, you see, with your drinks party in mind, Peter, and I don't know if this works in virtual settings. We'll have to find out. You can tell us. But anyway, in this study, people were given plates of crisps, and they grabbed even more handfuls of crisps when another person was there with them, even though they might not necessarily eat more of the crisps. Now, the authors suggest that it might be because you don't want someone stealing your food, but is that really what's going on? Phil Sansom got the independent perspective from Anglia Ruskin University behavioural ecologist Claudia Vasher. They have basically asked humans to eat crisps for them and they have told the participants that it's about a taste experiment. So the participants had to fill in, yeah, crisps were crispy and salty and actually tasted good. But indeed, the researchers had a completely different study aim. They actually wanted to find out the eating behavior of the participants if they're tested alone or with other individuals. What's actually physically going on when they do this experiment? Do they sit someone down in a room and they give them a little bowl of crisps and then there's someone across the table from them? Yes, they have tested approximately 60 participants And one group was the ones who were tested alone. Another group was tested with a partner. So when they came into the room, there was somebody else sitting opposite them. And then they had a third group. They basically had an opaque barrier. So they couldn't see the other individual eating crisps, but they could only hear them. What kind of crisps were they? I don't think that they say in the paper because obviously they don't want to make (laughs) product placement. And this actually could be a conflict of interest for the authors. Was this a a study sponsored by Pringles? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I have to say, it sounds like a fun study to be involved in. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think the background of all of this is no matter whether it's humans or birds or fish, foraging in groups has benefits for the individuals. So it's less likely that they're eaten by a predator. It's more likely that they actually find food because they have more eyes to look out for food sources. But once the group has found some food sources, of course, there's more competition. What did they actually find then? So they found that when there were other people in the experiment, the participants grabbed pieces of crisps more often They didn't necessarily eat more crisps. They also conclude that people must have taken smaller pieces of the crisps. Why then would people have taken 
crisps more often, but maybe a little bit less. They are arguing that it's a competitive situation. You find some food, and you basically have to hurry up to get as much out of the food source as possible. Well, you're worried someone's going to eat your crisps. Exactly, exactly. And the authors kind of say that taking smaller pieces more often could be tactical consideration. I know I do um, that at the pub. Yes, I think we all can relate to this. Another explanation, which I think is worth mentioning, is social facilitation. We're more likely to engage in an action if other individuals engage in their action too. Think about other animal species, for example, if you forage in the wild and you're given a bag of crisps in front of you, initially you wouldn't know, like, are they actually safe to eat? So it might be worth actually watch other individuals eating them and kind of make a decision it's safe to eat this. So you're saying it might be like a social activity, like you see someone else eating crisps and you're like, oh, okay, I'll eat more crisps. Exactly. This is also something they put two strangers into a room with a plate of crisps. This is a bit socially awkward. We all, <laughs> when, when we meet, I mean, we are all group living animals. However, when we meet strangers in the first instance, you will want to know are they a friendly person and engaging in an activity like eating or even mirroring the activity of the other individual might kind of signal getting to know each other, getting familiar with each other. Yeah, I think it's a quite fun story to do to kind of test what makes humans tick when they eat. And again, it might be a very unconscious thing, which we are not quite aware that it's actually happening. And I think it's fun to get to know people a bit more by doing this kind of experiments. I'd be straight in there in the chips and crisps, regardless of whether there was a stranger in the room. Anyway, that was Claudia Vasher, and she wasn't involved in the study herself. She was just commenting on it for us. The actual study was by Yukiko Agura and colleagues, and it was published in the Royal Society Open Science. And now it's time for the mailbox, where we read out the things you've been sending in. And this week, we're answering this question from Philip, who wants to know if coronavirus can be transmitted in a vape cloud. So, Chris, what do you think? Hello, Philip. This is something I've wondered myself, actually. In fact, I've followed a car along a road in the past and been able to smell what the person in the car in front of me was vaping. And this got me wondering, well, if I can smell that, that's presumably air that was previously in the lungs of the occupant of that car. And if I can smell the vape molecules, could there also be infectious particles of virus? For instance, their rhinoviruses or adenoviruses, or in the current situation, their coronaviruses, which are making their way into my car too. Well, I think the likelihood of that happening is extremely remote because the amount of dilution of the air between them and you is going to be extremely considerable. But the fact that you can smell the vape shows you that molecules which have that smell were in that person and they are telling you where the air from that person has gone. Now, that means, in theory, if there were some virus particles amongst those vape molecules, they could be following the same path, and they could therefore also end up in your face. There are some considerations, though, which make this extremely unlikely as a route of transmission. The main one to consider is that the vape molecules that give it the smell are really tiny. But the particles of virus are considerably bigger and they're also in droplets of water, largely, from the person's respiratory tract. So although they'll move a considerable distance and they'll bob around in the air, they won't travel as far and they won't travel as fast as the smoke or vape from someone vaping. So what you can regard this as is almost as a proxy for where the air from another person is going and it should serve as a warning for how fast air can move smells and smokes and possibly viruses around but also take comfort from the fact that probably the amount of virus by the time it's gone from that car out of the window and through the air conditioning unit of your car and into your face is going to be really very tiny and almost certainly lower than an infectious dose but if you are sharing a room with that person or even their car you'd be at much greater risk because the close proximity to them means that the virus particles would be in higher concentration and you're more likely to inhale what we would call an infectious dose, which in the case of this virus is probably about 20 virus particles. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. 
cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This week we are looking at radioactivity from its original discovery through to its uses, both good and bad. And to kick us off, Adam, the lucky thing, we got to play film critic actually to go and get a sneak preview of Radioactive. Now this is a new film that tells both the scientific and romantic story of Marie Sklodowska-Curie and her husband, of course, Pierre Curie. They're the couple whose pioneering work led to the discovery of the radioactive element radium and the film also documents the reverberations of their discoveries across the 20th century. Science is changing. And the very people who are running science are the people who believe the world is flat. I'm going to prove them wrong. Marie Sklodowska-Curie and her husband Pierre Curie are true pioneers in science. Marie remains the only person to have Nobel Prizes in different sciences, physics and chemistry, for her work on radioactivity and for her discovery of polonium and radium. And she is the subject of an upcoming biography called Radioactive, starring Rosamund Pike. And I was lucky enough to get to sit down with director Marjan Strapi and actor Sam Riley, who plays Pierre, to chat about a movie so grounded in science. The problem, you know, with showing a scientific work in cinema is not the science is, is not the, the science is not exciting. The science itself is very exciting, but that is like the procedure of creation. Like when I create, you know, if you film me creating, basically my mouth is half open and I'm, you know, looking into some kind of empty space. So it's nothing really attractive to see, to, to tell you the truth. And science is a repetitive work most of the time. So, you know, to show that and making it exciting... It's not this easy. And then you cannot make a movie about two scientists and never talk about science because this is a fraud. So you have to talk about the science. So then you try to be as accurate as, as possible, you know, show, you know, an atom of a radioactive element as an atom of radioactive element would look like. Because unlike art, where it's so my personal interpretation uh, is, some, is something extremely objective and factual about science that makes it so exciting because there is no place for your personal interpretation. So what do you do when you're an actor and you have to step into the role of someone who's real? I've played real people before, but I've always been lucky that they weren't contemporary people, you know, because if I was to play Boris Johnson, people know his mannerisms and his gestures and people would be observing whether I'm doing a good in impression of somebody. Yeah? And I think at the end of the day, one is trying to find an emotional truth with something. I remember Marshan telling me that when I'm explaining the science, it would be good if I look like I know what I'm talking about. But the rest of it is human emotion and human feeling. And, and when you're working with great people like like Rosmond you know you look at them in a moment and you believe what they're saying and then you're reacting to that it's it, it's a, like a reaction in itself i suppose and exactly as Marjan expressed that's what people when they're watching it understand and can relate to because it feels honest you know now having spent all that time deep in the story what does Marjan think the legacy of radioactivity is so this is this whole boom going around around the radium because suddenly, as it can cure cancer, it can cure anything. So you have all these different products from, you know, the face powder to the radioactive cigarette. It's incredible what will happen. But then 39 years after the death of Pierre Curie and 11 years after the death of Marie Curie, you have the atom bomb, 1945. And this is what has happened. So, you know, can we make a direct link between the, sci the, the scientists that they were and the atom bomb? Obviously not, because, you know, they discovered something. They even didn't invent something like Nobel did. You know, the, the radioactivity exists in the nature. They discovered something that already existed. Is that for this that, you know, we can completely reject the idea of the radioactivity? I don't think so, because, you know, this is always the question of ignorance towards the knowledge. When you're ignorant, you're so sure about all your beliefs because the less you know, the more you're certain that what you know is right. The more you know, the more you understand is complex. And then you start having doubt about everything. And what about the Curies? What's their place in history? For me, it's like, wow, 
they're, they're still today they're the couple of the future <laughs> that is my, my legacy yeah that's yeah, that's absolutely true yeah Actor Sam Riley there and before him director Marjan Satrapi on the upcoming biopic Radioactive telling the story of Marie Curie. The film was to have been released in the last week or so but like many films the launch has now unfortunately been put back owing to the coronavirus pandemic. Now a lifetime of exposure to high levels of radioactivity eventually killed Marie Curie unfortunately and in fact her notebooks are still far too radioactively are still far too radioactive to be handled safely even today. But radioactivity is used routinely and very effectively in medicine to cure different diseases. So how does that work? Well, with us is cancer specialist Tom Rokes, who's from the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital. Hello, Tom. Hello. Well, first of all, we we need to begin, before we can talk about curing people of things, why did Marie Curie develop problems with her health because of exposure to radioactivity? What did it do to her? So I guess you could think of radioactivity as lots of tiny bullets of energy which can go through the body's tissues. And they can damage the DNA, the life code inside cells. If they damage them a lot, that cell can die, and we use that in medicine with radiotherapy. But if the damage is more minor, uh, then you can get mutations in the DNA, and those mutations over time can add up and cause cancer. And are any particular parts of the body vulnerable or is any part of the body susceptible to this happening? So the parts of the body that are more susceptible to damage from radiation are the parts where the cells are growing quickly. So again, with the radiotherapy that we use, the tissues that tend to have more side effects from radiation are things like your mouth and your gut, where the cells are growing and dividing all the time, rather than parts like your brain, which tend to be fairly stable. And so it's the fact that cells which are dividing are susceptible to being damaged by the radiation. That's why you can actually turn this around and say rather than worrying about it causing cancer, if someone's already got cancer, you can use the vulnerability of fast growing cells to hit them with a dose of radiation and kill them. We use the fact that cancer cells tend to be growing more quickly than normal cells. So in normal cells, the DNA is packaged away very safely and tightly inside the nucleus of the cell, so it can't be hit by these bullets of energy that the radiotherapy gives. Whereas cancer cells, their DNA is outside being divided and grown, uh, and that makes them more sensitive to the radiation. When you use radiation therapeutically in this way, what sort of radioactivity do you use? What's the source? So I guess that's the other difference between now and the radiation that the Curies were using. They were using naturally occurring radiation, which you can't turn on and off. Now in hospitals, we use a machine called a linear accelerator, which is about two million pounds worth of high technology kit with a generator of particles that hits a tungsten target. And it's that that produces the energy of radiotherapy. But you can turn it on and off. So when the machine is off, it's perfectly safe to go into the room uh, and when it's on only the person in the line of the beam is actually affected by the radiation. So you zap a person's cancer if you know where it is with a dose of radiotherapy to destroy the cells hopefully but why doesn't that radiation then damage more healthy tissue and cause the person to have more new cancers? So it does damage that healthy tissue but to a lesser extent and over the years doctors have learnt ways of minimising the damage to the normal parts of the body while maximising the damage to the cancer. So for example most of the time when we're trying to cure cancer we give radiotherapy in lots of little repeated doses over a number of weeks with the hope that the normal cells are better at repairing damage to their DNA and so can recover overnight if you like whereas the cancer cells tend to die more easily. Is the same true therefore when we use a degree of radiation exposure to do imaging. I'm thinking things like X-rays and CT scans. We're using a dose that's useful to us in terms of imaging the person, but not sufficiently large that we're going to cause a big increase in risk of them actually getting a cancer. Yeah, so the, the energy that we use for imaging is much less than for radiotherapy because you're not trying to kill any of the cells or to damage them at all. So the energies that we use are much less. But every dose of radiation we give, whether that's an X-ray or a CT scan, does give uh, some radiation which in theory uh, could cause uh, damage at a very low level in cells. So doctors always try to minimise the dose of radiation that we need and not put people through scans that, that they don't need. 
And how else can we actually use radiation in order to, to image? Because obviously people will be familiar with things like a chest X-ray or going in a CT scanner, the thing that looks a bit like a donut. But what other measures and mechanisms of doctors like you got at your disposal? So I guess the most exciting change in the last 10 years or so has been things like PET scans. So a CT scan will give you a 3D picture of the inside of your body in different shades of grey, but it doesn't tell you what the tissues inside the body are doing. We use the fact that cells that are growing and dividing need sugars like glucose in order to grow. And if you give someone some glucose and make it radioactive, you can detect where that glucose is going and show up in different colours where areas of cancer are. So that enables us to find cancer where we couldn't otherwise see it. It's amazing how it's come through full circle, isn't it? Tom, thank you so much. That's Tom Rokes. He's from the Norfolk and Orange University Hospital. Pleasure to have you on the programme. Thank you. Coming up, how do you store nuclear waste and how many plants would you need in a sealed tank to keep a family of frogs alive? Dare I say it, so they don't croak it. Now, it would, of course, be very remiss of us to discuss radioactivity and um, not discuss the darker side of this area of science. And that's what Adam has been finding out about. One of the most infamous uses of radioactivity is to turn it into a bomb, an atom bomb. These bombs have only been deployed against humans twice, at the end of World War II on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. Countless lives were lost, both in the initial blast and due to the radiation afterwards. But how does an atom bomb work, and how were they developed? I spoke with nuclear historian Alex Willerstein from the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey about the development of the A-bomb. The United States didn't really start trying to build an atomic bomb until early fall of 1942. That's when it decided that the splitting of atoms is not just an interesting scientific phenomena, but could be in a relatively short amount of time made into a weapon that you could use in the present war. So this is the beginning of what they called the Manhattan Project. This was an army run effort to build weapons that you could use during World War II. They got pretty much every scientist and engineer who they thought could be useful for the project. They also got the labor of hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, doing construction and operations. Uh, They created literally hundreds of secret sites across the country. It was a huge endeavor. And one of the ways I like to contextualize it is the total number of people who worked on the bomb project during World War II was on the order of about 500,000 people which is about 1% of the American civilian labor force at the time. So it was truly a massive undertaking. But how does a nuclear bomb work? So you can think of a nuclear bomb as being an engineering device to bring about specific conditions. One where one atom of uranium or plutonium splitting will lead to the splitting of more than one other atom of uranium plutonium in a very short amount of time. If you can make it so that one split leads to two splits, leads to four splits, leads to eight splits, leads to 16 splits, leads to 32, this is exponential growth. And if you do that 80 times, 80 of those generations of splittings, you end up with um, on the order of a trillion trillion splittings, which is enough to destroy a city because each of those splittings is releasing a little bit of energy. Eventually, they had a device ready to test. When J. Robert Oppenheimer, nuclear physicist in charge of the Los Alamos site, saw the test, he was reminded of the Hindu holy text, the Bhagavad Gita, and especially the line, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. When the bombs were set off, either by firing two pieces of uranium together within the bomb, or by compressing plutonium with explosives, the blast could level cities. And the world wasn't done with nuclear weapons. As it seemed that the world was not going to ban weapons, at least anytime soon, the U.S. got very interested 
in two things. One was what are the effects of nuclear weapons precisely, especially on military equipment? You can see some of the effects of the nuclear weapons by either setting them off in the desert, like they did at the Trinity test, or by dropping them on cities, which gave them a lot of information on the effect of nuclear weapons on a city. But how would it work on boats, for example? Uh, in June and July 1946, they decided to run the first post-war nuclear testing series where they set off two Nagasaki-style bombs in uh, the Pacific Ocean at the Bikini Atoll. As they continued through the post-war and into the Cold War, the U.S. was very interested in making new bombs. Can we make a new design? Can we make them more efficient? What are the effects of bombs on tanks? What are the effects of bombs on food? What are the effects of bombs on livestock? These are all sort of war scenarios they're thinking about. They ended up coming up with a rationale to do literally um, about a thousand nuclear tests over the course of the Cold War in the U.S. And the Soviet Union did very similar uh, sorts of things to learn new things. There's an element of them that's also at times uh, sort of showing off, sort of saber rattling, but there was always a sort of technical reason that they thought that they needed to do these tests. There's a lot of reasons why the people who developed the weapons wanted to use them in war against Japan. Uh, they were not unfeeling, heartless people, but they had reasons for doing this. But one of the ones that people don't usually know about is some of the people, including Oppenheimer, they feared that the next war would not be just fought with the weapons they had developed in World War II, but the weapons that they knew would become developed if they kept working on these weapons, things like the hydrogen bomb. And they worried that if people didn't sufficiently fear these weapons, that the next war would destroy civilization. And so one of the rationales that they had for dropping the atomic bombs on Japan was to sufficiently scare the world and wake it up and hope that it would realize that it could not fight wars with these weapons ever again. It's a somber thought, isn't it? Thank you very much to Alex Willerstein from the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey for that report with Adam. Now, our issues with radioactivity, though, are obviously not behind us. A major headache today is how we're going to handle and safely store nuclear waste. Here in the UK, for example, we've got 650,000 cubic metres of the stuff. To put that into perspective, that's enough to fill Wembley Stadium. And it's going to be radioactive and dangerous for at least 100,000 years. Claire Corkill is at the University of Sheffield, and she's working on ways to store this stuff safely. So, Claire... What actually does that nuclear waste consist of? What's it comprise? It starts with the nuclear fuel from a nuclear reactor, which is uranium. And much like the bombs that we just heard about, the atoms inside it split to create energy. They release that in the form of heat, which we then use to boil water, which gives us electricity. But in a nuclear reactor, we have some way of controlling the splitting. So we've got some brakes where we can slow it down and control it so it doesn't end up like a bomb. But that material, when it's, when it's been finished within the reactor, we recycle it. So it contains a lot of uranium and plutonium, which we can then turn into new fuel. And the byproducts of the recycling are nuclear waste. So these byproducts are smaller atoms. So as the uranium atom, for example, splits, it makes uh, smaller atoms, which are also highly radioactive. We call these fission products. They end up being mixed with a type of glass which is not too dissimilar from the pyrex that you have pyrex dishes that you have in your kitchen and we we turn this waste into a, a very durable glass everything else that's left over from that recycling process is usually encapsulated inside a cement material and then there are a whole range of other materials that we don't yet class as a waste but they might be a waste in the future for example the plutonium that we've been recycling we don't actually have a plan to turn that into new fuel yet so what do we do with all this stuff? We end up with this, these barrels of what looks like glass or concrete. That, that sounds fine. What do we do? Just bury them? Well, they're currently packaged in specially engineered containers and stored in over 20 different secure nuclear sites around the country. And most of it is at Sellafield in Cumbria. And these stores are, are designed to withstand extreme weather and earthquakes. But the problem that we have is that 
the waste is so radioactive, we can't actually go anywhere near it. If you were to touch the outside of one of the glass waste containers, the radiation dose that you'd receive is 200,000 times more than a fatal dose of radiation. So whilst it's okay to store the waste securely for the time being, it's clear that we need a more permanent solution that requires less security. So remember, these wastes will be radioactive for over 100,000 years, and they'll be highly radioactive for several thousands of years. So we, we can't just leave them in their warehouses and hope that future civilizations will know what to do with them. Now, will they remain intact, though? Because the key question, if you know, today it looks like glass, but with that much radioactivity spitting out that much energy... Will it remain like that and in a stable form for the next 100,000 years, if we store it ideally, or is there a danger it might not? That's a really good question, and that's really what we've been doing a lot of work on at the University of Sheffield. These nuclear waste materials will change over the 100,000 years that they'll be radioactive. And there are some different ways that this might occur. So one would be corrosion, so the natural corrosion of the materials once they're buried deep under the ground, Uh, which is their final disposal route. If they slowly corrode in groundwater, they may release their radioactivity. But the other issue is, as as you rightly noted, is that the radioactivity inside the waste might actually cause the waste itself to break down. And you can think of this as a highly energetic particle, a bit, a bit like was described before with breaking DNA. Instead of breaking DNA, we're actually breaking the uh, intrinsic chemical bonds inside our nuclear waste material. And this will essentially cause the waste to disintegrate. This is something that we have to understand. So what you're saying is if we've got say something that looks like glass because it's spitting out all these energetic particles of radiation all the time it's slowly going to shatter the glass it's almost like shaking the glass very very hard for hundreds of thousands of years it's eventually going to fall to pieces and it will no longer be any good at retaining and constraining the radioactive products inside Essentially, yes. I mean, glass is a very good material because it has a very flexible structure. And if you break one bond, it's not going to affect the material. If you were to use something that was a a bit more of a crystalline structure, this might cause you a problem. But actually, what we're doing is trying to look at designing new types of wasteful materials that are based on natural uranium containing minerals that we know are millions of years old. And while their chemical bonds have been broken by radioactivity, they haven't disintegrated and they haven't released their radioactive elements. And so these are the kinds of uh, materials that we're now trying to develop for nuclear waste. Uh, And are these effectively mineral cages that you're talking about making, are they any good? Uh, Actually, what studies have we done to say that if if we bake this kind of cake and we put these materials into this molecular architecture, that it will actually perform better than what we can do with our present generation of things like glass and cement and so on? So one really good example is a mineral called zirconolite. Um, And these are some of the oldest minerals known on Earth. There are some that are slightly older, um, but they contain uranium. And we know that they contain uranium because they today contain lead, which is the stable isotope that uranium decays to at the end of its decay chain, Um, which means that over the millions and millions of years that these minerals um, have existed on the Earth's surface, Uh, they've managed to contain their radioactivity uh, safely. They've gone amorphous, which means their crystal structure has broken, but they're still intact. And what's more, we know that um, despite the fact they've been on the Earth's surface for such a long time and there's been lots of um, weathering and lots of uh, kind of geological events, uh, that they haven't changed and they haven't been weathered. And as I said, they still contain their uranium. So we base our design on minerals like zirconolite. And so uh, one of the pieces of research we're doing at the moment is looking at how to dispose of um, the huge stockpile of plutonium that we have in the UK. And actually, zirconolite is the ideal uh, mineral material that we can develop to immobilise plutonium safely uh, so that it doesn't get into the wrong hands in the future. How do we design something in the future so that this stuff stays where it is and isn't archaeologist bait and they suddenly dig up a radioactive cube of glass? At the present time, we are thinking that we will not mark where nuclear waste is kept. It's going to be buried deep below the ground. Nobody will know it's there. The worry about putting a marker on the surface is that it will automatically draw um, 
uh, humans particularly, because we're very inquisitive, uh, to that site to find out what's going on. And the example that I like to use is of the hieroglyphs on the pyramids, um, which clearly said in a language that nobody understood at the time, don't enter or you will be cursed. But the archaeologists of the time were fascinated and thought, well, we must go inside and see what's in there. And so sometimes leaving a marker um, may give you the result that you, you didn't want. And people might then use that as a reason to go down and start looking for the waste. So the plan at the moment is to not mark um, the waste and hope that people forget about it. And that if in the future they decide to dig there, they have the technology to dig that deep. So we're talking, uh, you know, between 500 metres and a kilometre below the ground. And if they have that technology, then they will also have some technology to be able to detect the radiation and know that they shouldn't go there. Thank you for that upbeat account there, Claire. That's Claire Corkill. She is from the University of Sheffield. And thanks to our other guests, Marjan Satrapi, Sam Riley, Tom Rokes and Alex Willerstein. Now we've just got time for question of the week where Phil Sansom has been croaking out an answer to this question from John. I just purchased some dart frogs which need to live in high humidity conditions. In order to attain this, we basically sealed off the terrariums. The question is whether a really sealed terrarium could provide enough oxygen for the frogs through plant photosynthesis. Who would win, the frogs or the plants? So John has got his pet frogs living in a tank with some earth, plants and moss. It sounds like he left some holes in there, thank God. But what would happen oxygen-wise if he shut them in for good? Here's plant scientist Stephanie Smith. There's two processes involved in this question, photosynthesis and respiration. Photosynthesis uses carbon dioxide and water, and in a reaction powered by light energy, produces glucose for plants. And it produces oxygen as a byproduct. And then the other process, respiration, is sort of the opposite. It's the one both plants and animals use to get their energy. It takes sugar in, that's glucose, which combines with oxygen and it makes energy, plus some carbon dioxide and water on the side. You might have noticed that the byproducts of respiration are the starting ingredients for photosynthesis. So can the plants just run these two processes in perfect balance? To some degree, yes. In 1960, a reverend called David Latimer placed a spiderwort plant in a huge sealed bottle garden. It has survived unopened since then. So we know plants survive pretty well in sealed tanks. But what would happen if you introduced an animal? Both the plants and frogs would be using oxygen for respiration, but the plant would also be producing extra oxygen from photosynthesis. Leaving aside the question of frog food, we want to know, in the words of listener John, who would win, the frogs or the plants? It would depend on the size of the tank and the number of the plants. After all, the Earth itself is a similar system, just on a huge scale. The practical answer is more complex. Researchers in Arizona built a facility called Biosphere 2 to see if eight humans could survive in a sealed system for two years. The oxygen levels fluctuated wildly, and extra oxygen had to be injected to keep the people alive. Biosphere 2 ran two such experiments in the 90s, and they ultimately ended in a bizarre story of sabotage and takeover by the now far-right US news mogul Steve Bannon. But that's another story, and regardless, if the oxygen fluctuates wildly in the Biosphere 2, which is a three-acre compound, it certainly does in terrariums that are about half a metre across. It drops a lot at night, when there is no light to power photosynthesis. Although certain small insects can deal with these oxygen fluctuations well, most animals cannot. So John, there you go. Either make sure your sealed terrarium is an acre or so wide, or stick to your ones with holes in the sides. Thanks for the question. And next week's is special delivery from Pavel. On one of the Naked Scientist programs, it was mentioned that a newborn baby has initially sterile intestines and gets its microbiome during the passage through uterus and vagina. What happens to children brought to this world via a caesarean? And if you think you know the answer, get in touch. You can go to thenakedscientist.com slash question, email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Adam who put the programme together. And do be sure to tune in at the same time next week because we're going to have some excellent kitchen science experiments for you to have a go at, whether you're a big kid 
or a little one. In the meantime, if you have any coronavirus-related questions, the Naked Scientist web forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum has a special board as a sub-board of our medicine category where we're answering those questions, and there are lots of them. We're trying to get to them as fast as possible. Do please keep sending them in, and we'll try to help you. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. From all of us at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.